Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we pick up a little light reading at the Johnson City Zine Fest. I got into zines through collecting. Whenever I go to a convention or an event, if I see a little booklet, I'm like, I have to get that for the collection. And grab your dancing shoes and learn about a movement to make square dance calling more inclusive. An invitation to callers to simply get out of the habit of saying, swing her or like, gents to the center. You know, those are ways that I can just slightly adapt it and it becomes a little bit more warm. Also, the perils of playing the spins. I've taken my jeans off and my whole entire thigh is covered in bruises from just hitting it. <laughs> and I don't think that's supposed to happen again. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Calling a square dance is tricky business. Skill has been handed down for generations, and some of the language callers use is a little old-fashioned. A growing number of square dance callers are updating that language. They say some simple changes to the words callers use will help keep the tradition alive and strong. Folkways reporter Lydia Warren has the story. It's a warm July night in Elkins, West Virginia, and 20 couples are square dancing at an outdoor pavilion. Twinkle lights shine and paper lanterns sway in the warm breeze as a string band plays. This is the Augusta Heritage Center in Elkins, West Virginia, where they've been hosting square dances for decades. Twenty-five-year-old artist and Elkins resident Nevada Tribble calls out moves like promenade, join hands, and circle to the left. Unlike the square dances you probably did in gym class, Nevada's calls have no gendered language, no ladies and gents, and no swing your girl. And this is on purpose. Before she learned to call square dances, Nevada grew up dancing in Elkins. We always had the kind of dance scene where like everybody dances with everybody, you know, like you change partners after every dance, regardless of like who you came with. Um, and I think that was like also a part that made it really inviting and inclusive because it just like didn't really matter who you were dancing with and, or any of that. Nevada noticed that the language of the calls didn't necessarily reflect the people on the dance floor. Sometimes there would be an uneven ratio of women to men on the floor, and using ladies and gents just didn't make sense. Some folks might want to dance with the same gender partner, whether it's a spouse, a friend, or a kid. And, of course, there might be dancers who don't identify with being called either a lady or a gent. Nevada thought everyone would feel welcome if callers used gender-free language. And making sure there are calls any gender can dance to keeps the dance floor full. Nevada is part of a new wave of callers in the Appalachian square dance scene who are trying to make dances more welcoming. They're sharing their new calls with each other in a zine called Circle Up. Nevada wrote this call for Circle Up. The zine is a small, glossy booklet with handwritten and illustrated instructions on how to call 17 gender-free square dances, as well as some non-touching and seated dances for participants who prefer or need these accommodations. This zine just kind of feels like it's a large invite. It's like, here are some people that have some ideas. That's Becky Hill, a professional dancer who became a caller when she lived in Elkins. She mentored Nevada and curated the Circle Up zine. We're not claiming to be experts. We're not claiming to be the only way forward. We are just the ones that have decided to start this conversation and to be a little bit more loud about that. For Becky, creating a welcoming space is just a matter of bringing out aspects of the tradition that are already present. Like, you don't have to change chase the rabbit, chase the squirrel. We don't have to change birdie in the cage. We don't have to change all these things. It's just like providing options and invitation to callers to just think about like, oh, can I just simply get out of the habit of saying swing her or like 
you know, gents to the center, you know, is there ways that I can just slightly adapt it and it becomes a little bit more warm. Of course, making square dances more welcoming is about more than just gender and language. It's also about race. The square dance community or like the old time traditional music community is pretty white. That's musician, dancer and community organizer Ian Tran, who splits her time between Floyd, Virginia and Brooklyn, New York. Ian visited Elkins for the Augusta Heritage Center's Old Time Music Week. The music is uh, does not come from entirely white roots. The banjo comes from Africa. Like it, the, there are fiddles in Africa. Also, the people in the community are still overwhelmingly white. Ian says she did a survey of people in the traditional music and dance scene and found that some people did feel unwelcome at jams, dances, and festivals. So she formed a group to take action. The makeup is people of color, people with disabilities, trans people. There's also an indigenous person in in the group. And there's a white male middle-aged organizer also. This group made a set of community principles to create more welcoming spaces in the scene. They included guidelines like not using slurs and listening to others. The principles were illustrated and printed into a poster, and that poster is tucked into Circle Up. Our hope is really that people will take the principles, uh, use what's valuable to them, and and use them in their own communities. Like bring them to your local square dance and stick them on the wall, or bring them to your local, you know, folk school and stick them on the wall, or your event, or if you have a camp at Clifftop or at at Galax or whatever festival you go to, and you can just clip it up to your campsite that to say like this. 10 by 10 space is my safer space that I'm welcoming people into. And these are the principles that we are going to try to stick by in order to make this a more welcoming community. I am Becky and Nevada say they're excited to see the tradition become more welcoming and, in turn, grow into a space where even more people feel at home on the dance floor. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lydia Warren in Elkins, West Virginia. In that story, we heard how Square Dance College are sharing these new calls through a zine. A zine, as in magazine, is a self-published pamphlet or brochure, or even a booklet. Some are very low-tech and rudimentary, and others are elaborately designed works of art. They're all unique and reflect the people who make them. Back in September 2021, we featured my interview with Susie Kelly, a zine maker and founder of the Johnson City Zine Fest. That year, the Zine Fest was making a comeback after the COVID-19 pandemic. But then it got canceled too. In 2022, though, the Johnson City Zine Fest returned. And this year, 2023, I decided to go and, well, make an audio zine about it. Here it is. I started by asking people where they were from. Asheville, North Carolina. Lexington, Kentucky. Johnson City. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Abingdon, Virginia. So how'd you get into making zines? Oh man, I made my first zines in high school in the 90s. So I think my friend Craig heard about zines somewhere, I'm not sure how, but so we just started making them with collage and writing in his dad's uh, office. We made Xerox copies and passed them around. I started making zines in undergrad as a way, I like them because they're more accessible, um, so you can make them, they're very easy, you just need a sheet of paper and not a lot of supplies. Honestly, my whole life I've loved comic books and horror movies and drawing monsters and stuff, so in my adult life it just made sense to keep on doing that stuff, but to actually share it with people instead of just having it little notebooks folded up for myself, you know. I got into zines through collecting. Whenever I go to a convention or an event, if I see a little booklet, I'm like, I have to get that for the collection. I've never actually made any zines until this month when I reached out to uh, Johnson City and they said, uh, oh, you're interested in coming as a vendor? I'm like, uh, uh, and I panicked and said, sure. And then I had a month to make some zines and now I don't just collect them, now I make them. I'm an Appalachian artist and a local artist here, and it seems like zines and the DIY self-publishing very much has like a grassroots feel to it, and I see that as very Appalachian and something that I wanted to 
try my hand at. So would you uh, pick one and tell me about it? Yeah. So this zine is called Unknown Cryptids. It is a collection of 10 different cryptids that you do not know because I made them up. Uh, after coming up with that idea, I went through and I just said, if I wanted to see something lurking through the woods, what would it be? So each page is kind of set up like a nature doc where you have the name, a descriptor, a picture when it's active and the size ratio in comparison to a human being. So you can tell how much you should run if this thing comes after you. Jane Mansfields has my favorite scene I've ever made. She's on the cover with her head severed. Um, it's about the sort of urban legend, like pop culture myth that Jane Mansfield, who did die in a car accident, but it's about the myth that she was completely decapitated. It's called, Is This a Couch and Will I Ever Be Comfortable Again? Um, so the zine's about these Instagram advertisements and over time, me trying to figure out what actually is a couch because I was getting advertised things like bean bags and dog beds and like floor pillows and all these things because that's what I was also searching but I thought I was looking for a couch but the internet thought it differently. <laughs> I have a variety of scenes right now the ones that I have out I have some about my childhood toys um, I have some about my job in which I had to do a lot of uh, phone calls cold calling and then I have some about like loving trinkets, so a variety of things. I decided to make a zine about bodily autonomy, like body liberation, uh, body neutrality. Just Western society is so filled with weird ideas that are contradictory about the body. Like there are things that we need to be ashamed of about our functions or certain parts and things. It's the soup season zine, and it has 15 different soup recipes in it. So it's kind of like a recipe anthology. A lot of these are my parents' recipes, so I grew up eating a lot of these soups. So I have one called um, Ayako and Naxital, and it's a glimpse into the world of female wrestling, and it sort of tells the story of these two female wrestlers who are sisters. And in one match that was very epic, they had to wrestle each other, and it was very emotional. It's called Peach Baby, and it's about my experiences, um, like struggling with my mental health and emotional, physical health, and kind of looking at that through the lens of some chickens that I rescued, um, who were named Peach and Baby. If you've never made a zine before, definitely try it. You can literally print it on a piece of copy paper and make a zine. That was David Wisher. Kate Maltby, Patrick Thomas, Elizabeth Kidder, Richard Graves, Claire Thompson, Amanda Simons, Brett Marcus Cook, Carrie Kendall, Jacqueline Lewis, and Artie David at the Johnson City Zine Fest back in September. For an annotated version of this story with artist links to find these zines, check out our website, wvpublic.org. Those two stories are part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. Since the project started, we've reported more than 150 stories about the people of Appalachia. You can find them on our website, wvpublic.org. Virginia's first modern apple cidery, Foggy Ridge, closed in 2018, but not for lack of sales. The business helped launch the craft cider industry in Virginia and across the southeast. But while the cider business closed, the farm stayed open. Diane Flint is the owner and orchardist. She now sells apples to other cider makers and has a new book out. Radio IQ's Roxy Todd visited Flint's farm in southwest Virginia and has this story. On a crisp October morning, Diane Flint leads me through the dew-dripped grass of her apple orchard. She picks a small green and red apple and hands it to me for a taste. Mmm, 
juicy. Mm -hmm. Very juicy. This is called a Smith cider apple, an old heirloom variety that was once prized by Southerners. I think they probably chose it for cider making because it's very juicy, very sweet. It's also a good eating apple. I enjoy it. It's very firm. It's a good addition to any kind of pie or apple cobbler. The Smith apple is just one of thousands of heirloom varieties that were once grown widely across the South. Some were family varieties grown on a single farm and passed down for generations. The South has apples from late May all the way through to apples that are harvested in November. But with refrigeration, farmers had less need to have apples that were harvested throughout the seasons. We didn't need an apple for every month. An early form of apples, the precursor to today's apple, originated in Asia around 10 million years ago. Apples traveled west into Europe and eventually made their way to North America, it's thought, in the 1500s by Scandinavian fishermen or perhaps with the Spanish through Florida. And many of the first apple varieties grown by white pioneers in America started right here in Virginia, dating back to 1612. Some of these old southern varieties are quite complex. They taste like ginger or peach skins or they have spicy notes and deep earthy earthy notes, and and we've lost our desire for that complex flavor. Many of these older varieties are now extinct, but there is potential for rediscovering them. Flint said there are some researchers who are hoping that DNA tracing might be able to find them across the ocean. Settlers often traded apples, and the United Kingdom has many preserved varieties. Some could even be descendants of heirloom apples from here in Virginia. So there may still be apples out there. There are also fields with wild apple trees, and she's been able to help some landowners trace the stories of heirloom apples on their property. And there are a handful of orchardists, like Flint, who are trying to preserve them. She walks me over to another tree. She's grafted a variety of cider apple called Red Field onto an older 20-year-old tree. When you cut it open, a bright red flesh is inside. God, Isn't that something? Seen, yeah. These are for cider. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're cool. just very dry. Mm -hmm. And so this makes a kind of a natural rosé. Flint closed her cider business a few years ago because she wanted to focus on what she truly loves, being in the orchard. Sometimes you're the victim of your own success, and our cidery grew, and we were distributing cider to 25 states, and I found myself not in the orchard, um, not, not climbing up a tree and, and pruning. I found myself at my computer talking to distributors and running a business. Diane Flint's new book is called Wild, Tamed, Lost, Revived, The Surprising Story of Apples in the South. It's available now through University of North Carolina Press. In Carroll County, Virginia, I'm Roxy Todd. Coming up, a lesson on playing the spins. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. If you love string band music, you don't have to go too far to find a bluegrass or old-time jam here in the Appalachian Mountains. Jam circles are loads of fun. Musicians get together, try out new licks, and teach each other songs. But you don't have to play fiddle or guitar to get in on the music. Playing along might be as easy as grabbing something out of a kitchen drawer. Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin brings us this. In a classroom in Fairmont, West Virginia, a diverse group of students has gathered to learn how to play an unlikely instrument, the spoons. Looking relaxed in a Hawaiian shirt at the center of the circle is their teacher, Jeff Padan. So jump in, guys, and um, do what you can. The seniors, kids, and young adults who showed up for Padan's lesson are playing spoons of different shapes and styles. 
Their practice is accompanied by a dulcimer version of Golden Slippers. Oh, I'm Jeff Fadan. I have been teaching probably 10 or more years. I find value in it. Fadan recently retired and now has more time to dedicate to music. He's primarily a drummer, but he also plays the dulcimer. Occasionally, he brings out his spoons. Using spoons as an instrument, as an alternative for me when I don't know the song. I can contribute to the jam with my spoons. It was just a matter of trying to figure out how to integrate the sound that spoons produce with the rhythm of the song. Throughout Appalachia, old-time and bluegrass jams are a beloved pastime. For those who want to join, the spoons are an accessible way to dip your toe in. When Fidan moved to West Virginia decades ago, he started attending music festivals. As a percussionist, he was intrigued when he came across the spoons at a festival once. Not everybody can afford uh, an instrument like a guitar, which is several hundred dollars, and people may not be interested in those instruments or don't have time. But if they are inspired by the sound of spoons for just a few bucks, you can get something that you can use to participate in a jam session. Spoons have been played for centuries in Europe, Asia, and the Americas. In ancient history, people used bones to play. You can still find bones players today, but more often people use a wooden set. The spoons became popular in American folk music, particularly in African-American jug bands. You might find the spoons accompanied by a washboard or a jug, simple household items that can easily be picked up to carry a tune. And another general principle is, is that there's room for only one spoons player in any given band. <laughs> Fidan is teaching this free spoons workshop at Patty Fest. It's a yearly festival held in honor of Patty Lumen. Lumen was a mountain dulcimer player who taught Fidan, along with many others. Today there was nine or ten people in here. The numbers have been rising the past few years, and people have all of a sudden become interested in spoons. So it, so it just drives me on. Aspiring spoons players have a couple different options. You could play with metal spoons, or you could opt for a pair of carved wooden ones. I have in my lap here several spoons uh, of different types. This one was made by Bob Snyder, uh, who's at the festival. Like their players, each set of spoons has its own personality. Bob Snyder makes his spoons from sassafras, walnut, oak, and other hardwoods. Even the two of them at the same woods are going to sound different because the grain in them and stuff is fine. I like the ones that look better. I like the walnuts. Everybody's different. Snyder is an old-time musician from Clarksburg, West Virginia. He's also a woodworker. After seeing spoons around at festivals, he tried making them himself. His design is his own. Yeah, so I, I have a block, a square block. After I've cut the outside and done some like rough sanding, then I separate the two halves. Wooden spoons mimic the shape of kitchen spoons. Cups of different sizes are carved out of the wood. The two halves can then be glued together, creating one singular instrument rather than two metal spoons that have to be held together in a particular way. But you know, I mean, I want them to last for people and be comfortable. If it's not comfortable, they're not gonna play it. Wooden spoons might be more comfortable, but some players still prefer metal spoons. Emily Kaneski in Wheeling, West Virginia, is one. I've grown up in a bluegrass family or old-time family. I never really picked up on any kind of instrument um, growing up. So I was thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. You know, I, I have rhythm. That's I do have that. I thought it would be interesting to type into the Google window how to play the spoons. <laughs> Kaneski's twin brother played in an old-time bluegrass group, the Marsh Wheeling String Band. After teaching herself how to play, she joined the band on stage at Ogilvy Fest. It was always kind of a joke at first, and people just thought it was funny. And I thought that was funny too, but after a while, I started to, I wanted it to be a more of a serious thing. Playing the spoons involves kind of beating yourself up. Your body is part of the instrument. I've taken my jeans off and my whole entire thigh is covered in bruises from just hitting it. <laughs> and I don't think that's supposed to happen again. I was probably just a little overly excited and hitting my thigh harder than I should have, most likely trying to make it louder. Kaneski has honed her skills and can turn a clamor into a tune. She explains that playing the spoons is not just about the sound you make, but also about the performance. When she gets on stage, she becomes the star of the show. The drag is usually the big one of the night. <laughs> it's the big applause getter. A drag is a technique where you sweep the spoons across your fingers. Done not just the hand and the knee, but the elbow and the knee. It doesn't sound any different, but it just looks different and people got really crazy when I did that last time. Kaneski has delighted listeners with her spoons at open mic nights, on stage at festivals, even at her own wedding. These days, her work as a nurse and a mother keep her busy, but she says she'll never retire from the spoons. I love it. It's so easy if you can just have rhythm, practice. It'd be a really cool instrument to play that doesn't really require, you know, formal musical training. And also it's different. It's not something that you see every day. So next time you're putting away your silverware, give it a try. Play along with the rhythm to a song, find a local bluegrass jam, or take a free workshop next year at Patty Fest. 
For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin. In that story, Lauren mentioned an instrument that often accompanies spoons, the washboard. The Columbus Washboard Company in Logan, Ohio, was founded in 1895, back when people needed washboards for their laundry. Today, most washboards are used in an entirely different way. Folkways reporter Capri Cafaro visited the Columbus Washboard Company factory and has this story. I'm at the Columbus Washboard Company in downtown Logan, Ohio, surrounded by the Hawking Hills. Today, a group of local musicians are at the factory storefront for a washboard jam session. We have people come out of the woodwork to play washboards. We invite some, but the other ones just turn up. That's Jackie Barnett a New Zealand native who's lived in the Logan area for over 40 years. Barnett is one of the owners of the Columbus Washboard Company. Below the storefront in the basement is where the washboards are made. In some ways, the factory floor looks more like an antique store filled with old machinery. Barnett shows me the machine that drills holes into the wooden legs of the washboard. The machine is original from the early 1900s. The company was started in 1895, and these machines were introduced in the early 1900s. Next, Barnett takes me to the crimping machine, which manipulates the texture of the metal that will become the body of the washboard. One of the staff feeds a roll of stainless steel into one side of the machine. As the metal works its way through, the smooth sheet becomes crumpled like an accordion. Depending on the machine setting, the metal can also be impressed with a spiral pattern while it's crimped. Barnett shows me some of the variations. This crimp is called our double handy crimp. One side of it is coarse for scrubbing socks and blue jeans, getting grass stains out of them. The other side is soft and rounded for your lingerie. And this was used many, many years ago, and it's still used today. The original purpose of a washboard was, of course, to wash clothing. But over time, the humble washboard has taken on many roles. Some people use washboards as decoration in their homes. And as a matter of fact, I have three Columbus washboards hanging in my own laundry room. Another popular use for the washboard is as an instrument. And it's used in all kinds of music styles, including country, jazz, Chuck Band, and even punk. The concept of using a washboard in music is nothing new. Washboard playing traces back to hambone, a style of music with roots in African drum playing. Enslaved people were forbidden to use drums in an attempt to stifle self-expression. So they used clapping, stomping, and household items like the washboard to make the rhythm that would otherwise have been played on a drum. Some handbone musicians even used their body as an instrument, like in this 1980 recording of Donald Crower from North Carolina. Over the years, makers like the Columbus Washboard Company have innovated the design of the washboard to enhance its function as an instrument. As the last remaining washboard maker in the U.S., Barnett has incorporated player suggestions into product design. I actually had musicians calling me, and one of them suggested, why don't we try stainless steel? At the time, the tin that we were using was very thin and would wear out, and so we also introduced a heavier-gauge galvanized metal. Not only do different metals vary in durability, they make different sounds, too. Just ask Joe Rose from Chillicothe, Ohio. He's a new washboard player and has been experimenting with the various sounds washboards can make. Rose explains that different crimping patterns create different sound effects. And what you use to strum the washboard with can change that sound too. Usually you need something metal to magnify the sound to it. And depending on the type of metal it's made out of, it's going to make a deeper or you know, more bright sound to it. And there are lots of metal tools to choose from like thimbles, whisks, banjo picks, and even shotgun shells. Rose picks up a metal whisk to demonstrate. This is the wavy crimp with the whisk. This is the spiral crimp with the whisk. 
And the glass one with the whisk. Ultimately, the washboard is a percussion instrument. Jackie Barnett says remembering that is the secret to washboard playing. It's just a matter of pretending you've got a drum set in front of you and you just make different noises and different sounds and just drum to the music. With so many options, some players want customized washboards. Breezy Payton is one of those musicians who has collaborated with the Columbus Washboard Company to make custom instruments. I caught up with Payton by Zoom while she's out on the road touring with Reverend Payton's Big Damn Band. Peyton says she is one of the few full-time professional washboard players in the world. Her passion for playing the washboard comes from her family's Kentucky roots. My granny Fanny, which was my great-grandma, had one on the wall of her uh, house growing up, so I kind of messed around with it a little bit. But I studied just a lot of drumming techniques to learn the washboard, and I listened to a lot of uh, old jug band and blues music that had it. Washboard Sam was one of my favorites. Washboard Sam was an African-American blues musician who was a washboard-playing pioneer. He's such a legend, his washboard is on display at the Smithsonian. Influenced by giants like Washboard Sam, Peyton, who's white, started playing used washboards she'd find at antique stores. Her first was a Columbus washboard. A lot of times these antique ones, I mean, they'd been used to clean clothes and stuff, so they were pretty worn out. Um, So I was wearing through them really quick. And I was like, man, I should really think about just buying new ones. Peyton reached out to Columbus Washboard when she was ready to buy her new ones, in part because using an instrument made in the USA is something she values. It was important to me to play an instrument that was close to home, too. And I couldn't believe that it was just down the street, really. I mean, in Columbus, Ohio, or outside of Columbus, where they made them. Peyton chooses different kinds of washboards depending on the setting. When I'm recording, uh, like in a studio, I generally use a brass washboard, but I use a galvanized or a stainless steel on tour because it gives me a little bit more volume. And the brass is a little bit softer, so it's better in a studio setting. Even though the stainless and galvanized steel washboards are made to be more durable, Peyton still goes through a lot. I play a new one nearly every day because I wear through them because I play such an aggressive style of washboard. Peyton isn't the only washboard player Columbus Washboard supports. The company strives to make washboard music accessible to all. They helped establish the Washboard Festival in Logan, where people of all ages and experience levels can get on stage and play. The Columbus Washboard Company and the Washboard Festival have managed to capture the spirit of washboard playing, taking an everyday item and incorporating it into an art form. I like the idea of someone, you know, doing this monotonous task of doing their laundry and wanting to entertain themselves and singing along and banging on that washboard as they go along to make, you know, a monotonous task a lot more fun. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Capri Cafaro in Logan, Ohio. The holidays are here, and holiday celebrations can be loud and bustling. For someone with dementia, that can be overstimulating and even frightening. But there are things caregivers can do to help. Teresa Morris is program director for the West Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas recently spoke with Morris about how to include people with dementia in holiday celebrations. Let's talk about the holidays. Uh, We've got Thanksgiving, we've got Christmas, we've got Hanukkah, we've got all kinds of reason families are together. What should you do? What should a caregiver know and do to adjust things to help out? I mean, so we know that I mean, holidays are challenging for everyone. Anyway, yeah. Anyways, and then if you throw someone in that, you know, has dementia, you know, I think the biggest thing is we, as caregivers, we have to remember that we have to adjust our expectation of what the time is going to be like. I mean, you can still have fun. You can still have a fantastic celebration, but it's probably not going to be the same. 
Um, you know, you want to try to check in with the person that has the disease. You know, how you doing? Are you okay? Um, you know, you want to focus on things that bring happiness, you know, and, and, and letting go of maybe activities that are overwhelming to the person with the disease. I know my family, at least, you know, our celebrations are loud. That might be something you have to take a look at and, and maybe change that a little bit. You know? I, I remember reading somewhere, somebody talking about just not having the whole family over or, yes. or having them come in small groups. Small groups, or yes. Yeah. Um, you know, those are, those are great ideas, you know, to, just to try to limit that stimulation, that overstimulation. You know, even if you can somehow have a quiet room, you know, maybe people at different times go in there to, to speak to the person with the disease. Um, you just want to try to lower their stress. Mm-hmm. Um, because I promise it will lower your stress as well. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and we also just want to think about keeping the person with the disease on a familiar routine. You know, if if they eat lunch every day at 12, then you don't want to have your dinner at 2. You know, you want to try to keep that schedule for them. Um you know, and, and, and make sure that other family members or people coming in know that, you know, mom is having some trouble with, with her word finding. It might take her longer to, you know, answer. You know, she might not think of the word. Always want these folks to feel a, a, a sense of self throughout the disease. It's important that we don't just go, oh, mom has Alzheimer's. She can't help us anymore. Put her in a corner. Right. Because they still they still want to feel connected. You know, on some level, mom probably knows she always makes the mashed potatoes. You know, so those types of things. Um, and, and again, just, just involve her or him, you know, as much as you can. Maybe, maybe they can put the napkins on the tea or on the table. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you said it earlier, but I think that point of, lowering expectations that yes. that this isn't going to be the way we did it we've we've done it this way for 20 years and and uh, the kids sang and no that's right that's overload for most of us anyway but it's it is, it, it, it is definitely overload for somebody who's not processing things. Exactly. So you have to take the perspective of the person with the disease. It's very different than what my or your perspective would be. The person with the disease, they can't change. You know, they've lost the ability to problem solve, to, to, to sequence, to even speak sometimes. Um, so it's on us as caregivers to, to change our interaction. That was Teresa Morris from the West Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, speaking with Eric Douglas. Their conversation is part of the series, Getting Into Their Reality. Caring for Aging Parents. You can learn more at our website, wvpublic.org. Since 1989, West Virginia University scientists have studied the effects of acid rain on the Fernal Experimental Forest in Tucker County. COVID-19 pandemic restrictions forced changes in the long-term experiment, but researchers are now inviting local students to take part in the project's next phase. Reporter Chris Schultz sat down with WVU biology professor Edward Brasick to discuss the changes. If you could start us off by telling me in your own words about this project. We've been working at a long-term research site in Tucker County, West Virginia, called the Fernow Experimental Forest. Starting in 1989, they did an experiment where they were artificially acidifying a whole forest watershed to mimic what was coming out of coal-fired power plants and leading to acid rain across the region. We learned a lot of different things about how the forest responded to that acidification. One of the things we learned is that the nitrogen actually led to the trees growing faster. Um, There was some bad things, though. These forests also leaked more nitrogen because they were getting more nitrogen inputs and they just couldn't hold on to it. So a lot of it leached into waterways, which can impact water quality. In 2020, we couldn't get the helicopter or the airplane to fly. And so, and then there was also a lapse in funding. And so the experiment, we stopped adding nitrogen and sulfur to the watershed anymore. And so we thought of this actually as a great opportunity. And one of the things that this mimics is actually the success of the Clean Air Act. So the Clean Air Act reduced nitrogen and sulfur emissions 
and they're almost negligible to these forest ecosystems now. And so what we're really interested in is, okay, if we stop having this pollution coming into the forest, do the good effects, which is the enhanced carbon storage in the trees and the soils, are they maintained or do we lose them? And then are the bad effects, do those also, do we keep having those bad effects or do they go away quickly? So do you have any hypotheses that you're working on at the moment? So we have a hypothesis for how the forest responded. What it really relies on is that forests are somewhat like people and trees are somewhat like people. They're going to spend their cash, or in this case, carbon, on what they need the most. And so when you have nitrogen going into a forest, the trees aren't going to spend as much carbon in the soil. So they're going to make less roots. They're going to send less carbon to their root friends, their symbiotic fungi, or also bacteria that live right around the roots. And so basically, they're investing less carbon to get nitrogen. And so by doing that, what that means is the tree can grow more above ground. And because you don't have that carbon going into the soil, it's not fueling the microbes as much. And so what our main hypothesis is moving forward, as the nitrogen stops being dumped on the forest, what we're going to have is the trees are going to be sending more carbon below ground to their roots and their microbial friends. That's going to restart decomposition and it's going to lead to potential soil carbon losses. While at the same time, we might see reductions in tree growth above ground because the trees are now limited by the amount of nitrogen that's in the soil. You mentioned that this you know, long-term study has helped you understand the impacts of the Clean Air Act. Why was it necessary to set this up as a more controlled study when you could just go out and do field research in, in any of the other forests of, of the state. We can go out and we can do observational studies, and folks have done these across the entire eastern seaboard. But one thing you, when you're looking at those observational data, it's hard to think about other factors that could lead to differences in growth or in soil carbon or other things that could impact your data. So by having a controlled experiment, you can isolate other confounding factors like climate or tree species or where you are or the soils or the bedrock. And you can actually delve into what the actual mechanisms are. So that's why having the controlled experiment really lets you kind of get rid of all the noise and be able to look at, okay, what is actually driving this? Is it the microbes? Is it the symbiotic fungi? Is it the trees? One of the things that jumped out to me was the inclusion of K-12 students and specifically middle school students in this project. Can you tell me a little bit about why you all chose to target that specific group? The Fernow is located in Tucker County, and many of those students that they live right in the backdrop of that, the Fernow Experimental Forest, and they don't have any real knowledge of what the science that goes on there or what the important findings that we have found at that site. And so one of the things we did in this project is We've designed a number of activities to bring the students out into the field, have them collect real data, have them analyze that data, and, and actually learn about all the science that's going right on in their backyard that they just aren't aware of. So can you tell me a little bit more about what you've designed for these students? You know, we're going to start off going into the classroom and do a couple of different classroom activities where we give them some of the data on tree growth. We can walk them through graphing and just looking at that data and seeing, okay, yes, nitrogen led to these trees growing faster. Um, moving forward, what we'd like to do is we're going to bring the students out into the Fernow and lead them on a field trip where they're going to collect actual data. But the other thing that we can do, some simple litter decomposition experiments. So it's, it's both collecting observational data and then having the students do some simple experiments in the field where all you need to do is put a leaf in some window screening and then have its initial, you know, weigh it at the beginning and then weigh it after, you know, weigh it six months later to see how fast microbial decomposition occurred. That was Edward Brasek speaking with Chris Schultz. You can find a transcript of this interview on our website, wvpublic.org. A new documentary explores the life of Herschel Woody Williams the last living World War II recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Here, Williams recalls how he was received when he went to the recruiting office after first hearing about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And he didn't even look at my paper. He just looked at me. And 
he said, we can't take you. And I said, why? And he said, you're too short. So I left. I went back, and, and as I recall, I walked back home because I didn't have any transportation. I walked back to the farm, and they don't want me, I don't want them, I guess. That clip is from Woody Williams, An Extraordinary Life of Service, a documentary about West Virginia public broadcasting. Williams was a West Virginia native who spent decades working for veterans and their families. Williams died in July of 2022 at the age of 98. WVPB's Randy Ohi and Janet Kanicki spent more than a year exploring Williams' life and legacy for the documentary. Bill Lynch spoke with them about the experience. When did you, you know, first encounter Woody Williams? I first encountered him, oh, maybe 15, 20 years ago when I was working for WSAZ as a field reporter, and he was just in my beat. And so a couple of times when you went and covered a Veterans Day ceremony or something, there he was. He was the speaker. Got to know him a little bit and, uh, and done stories off and on with him ever since. For me, uh just always saw him at the Capitol during session and uh, never really interacted with him. But I always saw him wearing his Medal of Honor. And fast forward a couple of few, whatever, years later, um, Randy and I were in the Senate chambers waiting to interview somebody. There's Woody. (laughs) And it's like, sir, can I get my picture taken with you? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, that's one of my prized pictures now. He had a heck of a presence. I mean, he could gently dominate a scene. He wasn't overbearing. I mean, he had one of the best balances I've ever met of any person. He was always on a mission. He always had something to do. He could talk to a, a prince or a pauper the same way. And he had, a, he had this kind of a gentle, demonstrative air about him that I've not really seen in anybody else ever in my life. How long was this documentary in development? When did you guys start? We started um, when he passed away last year in June. And uh, Randy, I guess, was assigned to cover the events. And, uh, we for just, radio, yeah. For radio. So we just teamed up with radio and video. She brought her camera. Yeah. And he brought I his mic. He brought my mic. And uh, so we covered it really thoroughly. And, and then Janet went to D.C. to cover to, him lying in honor there at the Capitol. At the Capitol. And uh, I came back having all this footage it's like, we got to do something with it. Where did the working on this documentary take you? Where did you go? Jeez. Um, well, after Janet went mm-hmm. to D.C., uh, then we went first to the Marine Corps Museum uh, just outside Quantico, Virginia. Right. But just getting that insight at Quantico was, was the first place we, we went and interviewed their curator there and, and saw their exhibits and, and saw how Woody was, was so revered. When Marines learn how to be Marines in boot camp, there's a Woody lesson for every single Marine. You know, this is what you need to aspire to. From there, we went to New Orleans, to the World War II Museum. Right. That's where we got the most famous line of our whole documentary. (laughs) Love it. was a a young lady, what's her name? Constance Whitaker. Constance Whitaker. Love it. I'm interviewing her. And, I, and she's talking about how she met Woody and how he would, a crowd, a crowd would be drawn to him and stuff. And I says, was he kind of like a rock star? And she goes, he was a friggin' rock star. So much gusto and sincerity. Just at a rough estimate, how many hours went into this? Hundreds. Yeah, hundreds. Many, many hours. Some of them were hard. More for Janet than me, because we didn't know it was going to be a half hour, hour. We decided then not to worry about it. Let's just write the story. What do you hope people will take away from your documentary? Just the passion that Woody had to serve, that they would pick up on that too, that it's not about him, but it's about other people. That they would just pick that up too. Uh, and, And I speak to that for myself as well, that I would think about other people before myself. I mean, in talking to his daughter and his grandson, and we spent a lot of time, two or three trips to uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where the Woody Williams Foundation is headquartered, and now his grandson, Chad Graham, runs it. We just saw throughout his family and his life, it was service. It was just being 
an unselfishness that's hard to describe, that it's not just about veterans, although for him it was about veterans and then everybody else, a guy on the street, you know, somebody he'd heard about, um, something that needed to be done to help people get from point A to point B. And he took that job beyond any kind of a scope that you would think needed just didn't just help them fill out their forms to make sure that they got their GI Bill money and stuff like that. I mean, he went to Vietnam during the Vietnam War to help him to, what's the word, acclimate, come back, because so many of the people in Vietnam had the PTSD when they came back. And somebody that had a personal problem, he'd drop everything he did, go to their house, and stay as long as he needed to. But he was just unselfish. Unselfish, yeah. Randy, Janet, thank you very much. Woody Williams, An Extraordinary Life of Service, is available through our website, wvpublic.org. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Carpenter Ants, Harvey and Copeland, Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band, La Tigra, John Blizzard, The Sycamores, Hazel Dickens, and Frank George. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.